we need anchors in our life. Um, we need literal, literal anchors when we have boats. Uh, they help us when we want to stay in one place and the tides are coming and going. Uh, they secure us when we are facing storms and raging seas. Uh, they give us a fixed position that holds us firm as we swirl around but stay fixed. We also need anchors in our soul and we need anchors as we go through a book like Revelation. I was uh, reminded as I was thinking of this notion of anchor of uh, one of the songs that uh, continues to resonate in my heart and mind. One of the groups that I listened to a fair bit as I was growing up as a young man was Supertramp. And uh, I've always thought that Supertramp is one of these uh, groups that they were always looking for something. They were looking for spiritual meaning, looking for spiritual reality in their life. And it pops up from time uh, to time in their particular lyrics of their songs. And one of the songs that uh, they sing, which I um, like quite a bit, is Land Ho. And uh, it's a fascinating song. Um, I think I just like it because of the, the one line in it, which I'll get to in a moment. But clearly, this individual who's writing the song is lost. They're uh, tossed about by various things. And he says uh, in the last verse of the song, they said, um, maybe I'll always be sad, and maybe there'll always be strife, drifting alone with a saddened tone, afloat on the ocean of life, Land ho, will I be sailing forever? And he says, oh, oh, I need an anchor for my soul. And I think that's uh, such a great illustration of the fact that there is so much turmoil around us that we need something that fixes us, that puts us uh, in secure ground, even though our world is turned around. As I look at the book of Revelation, it can be a rough and rocky book. We come to chapter 8 in particular, and we get into things that are difficult if we haven't already gone into things difficult. And next week, we're even into more difficult stuff. And uh, it reminds me that even in, as we go through the book of uh, uh, Revelation, we need an anchor. Well, the anchor points are a couple. First of all, the anchor points are found in the vision of chapter 4 and 5. And I want to keep driving us back to the first five chapters of Revelation because they give us security and stability as we're tossed about by the things that are uh, written in the book of Revelation. Particularly, uh, three words that I've mentioned before that come out of those chapters, uh, chapters 4 and 5, a throne, a scroll, and a lamb. And uh, we think first of the throne that uh, as we're reading the book of Revelation, as we understand what it's describing in our world, we need to always keep in view a throne in the universe, the control tower of the universe, so to speak. And on that throne is God, God who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and everything in it, God who guides and directs everything that takes place in this world from the largest uh, planet or star that is floating up in our universe to the smallest um, uh, uh, atom or uh, whatever it might be uh, that we can't see, God controls it all. And we need to fix that image in our head. We need to use that as an anchor. The second thing is the scroll. Remember in chapter 5 that uh, we see the one sitting on the throne and in his right hand he holds a scroll and, scroll and that scroll is written on the back and front all over. And it's clear that what is written on that scroll are the history and the purposes of God for this world and this universe. It contains all of his sovereign will. It's all there. It's all recorded as we've said so many times over the years here that God is not just a God who makes it up as he goes along. 
God is a God who knows the future, the past, and the present, all of it, all the details of it, and he is bringing this world to its exact conclusion. And so we need to be comforted by the fact that there is a scroll, and written in that scroll is the history of your world, my world, your life, my wife, and the history of this world and this universe. The third thing that we need to keep in our mind is the Lamb. The lamb is the one that stands in the midst of the throne. He is the lamb that's standing as though he was slain. He is the one uh, when nobody else can go and take the scroll and open it. He is the one that can go and open the scroll. Because he has perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father in his life and his death. God has raised him from the dead. He is the one who is able then to open the scroll. And he takes that scroll and he opens it. And so the book of Revelation is in a large part now the unfolding or the opening of the seals and the opening of that scroll. So that's the first uh, point of our anchor. Go back to the throne, to the scroll, and to the Lamb. The second point is chapter 1, which I read a portion of. It's a picture of the exalted Christ. We need to understand that, 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 that Christ is not still in the grave. It's one of the things that we talk about often, but certainly we zero in on uh, uh, Easter Sunday, is the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. That is the center pin of our Christian theology. It is the center pin of our Christian life and existence, that Christ is raised from the dead. He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is right now, at this present time, reigning over this universe. And we need to understand that the book of Revelation is a description in part of the reign of Christ. It demonstrates to us how he is reigning and he is ruling in these the last days. And the last days encompass the period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. This is how Paul describes the reign of Christ. He says, God raised Christ from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. We need to fix in our minds, to have an anchor point in our soul, this reality that Christ is right now and forevermore reigning and ruling. And so as we come to a text like this, and as we work our way through the book of Revelation, these are two critical anchor points. As we read in, uh, starting at um, verse 1 of chapter 8, we have just looked at the seals, seven seals that were on the, affixed to the scroll. They're not the contents of the scroll, but they're affixed to the scroll. And we've looked at each one of those. As the seventh seal is broken, there is silence in heaven for about a half hour. Whether that is a literal silence or a symbolic silence, I'm not exactly sure, but the silence speaks to us, tells us, reminds us, points us to the fact that why is there silence in heaven? It's so God can hear the prayers of his people. It's a beautiful image of the, the reality and the import of our prayer, that God listens to his people praying. And then out of that silence, we see two things happen. First of all, we see seven angels that step forward and are given seven trumpets. And we expect them right away to blow their trumpets. That comes in verse 6. But the silence and the angels and what's going on in verses 2 to 5 help us understand a little before we get to the blowing of the trumpets. First of all, the silence is so God, as I say, can hear the prayers of his people. And then it shows us that God's trumpets, the seven trumpets, are in part God's answer to the prayers of his people. 
Remember in chapter 6, verse 10, we have the prayers of the saints crying out to God, How long, O God, until you avenge our death? And the seven trumpets are part of God's judgment upon humankind for its treatment of the people of God. And so this silence in heaven tells us that God hears and answers our prayer. It also prepares us for God's partial answer to the prayer of his people for vengeance. And that is these seven trumpets. It's helpful to just get a bit of uh, the structure of Revelation in our heads. Um, I, I don't know if you'll remember this. I might put it in an insert. But uh, the book of Revelation is populated by series of sevens. We have seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. There's a, there, there, seven is a number for wholeness. It's a number of perfection. It's a number of completeness. And as we look at then particularly the seven seals and trumpets and bowls, we understand them to be broken up into two groups, uh, the first group of four and the last group of three. That's how they're revealed to us. Um, they come in two sets of a set one, seven divided into two sets. When we think of the seals and the trumpets, there's another division that is really important to understand, and that is between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there is an interlude. Pastor Barry took us through that last week, the, the, the picture of the church. And before any of the devastation, before any of the destruction uh, that was to take place on the earth was to happen, God would seal he would secure, he would make sure that his people of God were secure now and forevermore. And so it's a picture, it's an interlude that shows us God's hand upon his church as the world is going through difficult times. And then there's another interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And it's found in Revelation chapter 10 and chapter 11. And once again there we have a picture of the church as it is on this world, as the world is going through these difficult times. And so the, the seals and the trumpets are divided first by four and three, and then between the last division in between two and one. As I see it, the seals and the bowls and the trumpets are largely concurrent. I don't understand them to be consecutive in the sense that it's a sort of a prophetical uh, description of history that we go through the seals, then the trumpets and the bowls. They seem to me to recapitulate the same thing just in a different way, to word it in a different way, to give us a different description of it. Many of them talk about the same things, but from a different angle or a different point of view. There's also an intensification that takes place. When you are looking at the seals, it talks about maybe a quarter of the world. When you come to the trumpets, there's a third of the world. When you come to the bowls, the whole earth is impacted by the pouring out of the bowls. And so these things are said in different ways so that we get a different picture of it. When you want to communicate something of importance, you say it from different angles. My wife will say to me from time to time, Paul, could you pick up your clothes, please? And about two days later, Paul, you know, there's a pile of clothes still at the corner of the bed. Are they going to stay there forever? And then after I break my arm, it's, oh, were those clothes where you get out of bed? Just communicates the importance of picking up my clothes in five or six different ways. That's what is going on here with the uh, trumpets and the seals and the bowls. It's communicating the same point from different perspectives and angles. 
There's a cyclical nature to the book. It keeps coming back on itself. And so with each new cycle, we get a glimpse of how the reigning Lord Jesus Christ brings the purposes of God described in that scroll to fulfillment in the salvation of the church and in judgment of the world. As we come then to these seven trumpets, and as we think about the first uh, people reading this book of John in those seven churches of Asia, as they were reading this revelation for the first time, they would have read it with, uh, through the grid of the Old Testament. Very familiar with the Old Testament and the pictures and the images and the stories that were found in the Old Testament. As Pastor Barry reminded us last week, and I will say it again and again, and we will over the course of this time, revelation is not new information. Revelation is old information um, told in a new way. It's not new theology. It's theology that is reiterated in a different way. Revelation is the accumulation of Old Testament prophecy coming to bear on the last days and as God brings this world to fulfillment. And so it makes sense to understand the book of Revelation by having a good knowledge of the Old Testament. There are two things in these uh, trumpet um, images that are important for us to understand. First of all, it's trumpets. Trumpets are very familiar in the Old Testament. They were used in a number of circumstances, in a number of settings, for a number of reasons. But there's sort of two instances in particular that I think the, the, the first readers would have said, well, of course. And the first is the Battle of Jericho. In the Battle of Jericho, as the people of uh, Israel come out of Egypt and they've been wandering through the desert for 40 years, all of a sudden they come to the town of, uh, um, of Jericho, which blocks their entrance into Canaan, the promised land. And after seven days of marching around this city, on the seventh day they march around it seven times. And at the end of that seven times, what happens? Seven trumpets are sounded by seven priests, and the judgment of God falls upon the walls of that city and the city itself. And those walls, which are recorded to be at least 14 feet wide and a number of height, just come crashing down. Like ancient Jericho, which blocked entry of Israel into the promised land. Babylon, the great city of the evil one, which is prominent in our world today, blocks entrance, so to speak, into the new Jerusalem, the final resting place or the final um, a destination of the people of God. And surely the first readers of the book of Revelation, when they heard about this trumpets, would have realized that this was a, uh, the trumpets were a, 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 an indication of the judgment of God that was going to come that would make final their entrance into eternity. Secondly, trumpets were used often in the Old Testament to warn of impending trouble and danger. So the purpose of the trumpet cycle then in the book of Revelation is to sound alarms, so to speak. It's to warn the complacent, to warn those who are given up to their sin and uh, to idolatry, those who are intent on persecuting the church, to warn them and bring them out of their complacency into repentance. But as we see, judgment in and of itself is not enough to convince people that they need to turn to God. And in fact, at the end of the trumpet cycle and in the end of the bowl cycle, we find recorded again and again that the vast majority of people do not repent. In the book of Ezekiel, it says, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, 
Then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, the sword comes and takes away one of them. That person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hands. These angels with the seven trumpets are like watchmen that God has sent over the earth to warn the people of coming judgment. Joel in Joel chapter 2 writes, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy hill. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will there ever be again through the years of all generations. And so the first thing that the people would have thought of, or one of the first things, is they would have gone back to the Old Testament, refreshed their minds about trumpets and how trumpets were used by God. The second thing is the exodus, the exodus. The language, if you were listening as Mike was reading, is unmistakable. The first five trumpets are patterned after the plagues of Egypt. You hear it all over the place with the blood and the hail and uh, the destruction upon the land. The language is intended to recall for us the plagues of Egypt. One writer goes so far as to say the trumpet plagues reconstruct the Exodus plagues. Why might that be? Well, recall, if you remember the Old Testament and the, the plagues that fell upon Egypt, they fell upon Egypt because of the hardness of the heart, because of their idolatry, and because of the persecution of the Israelites. You understand that each one of the ten plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians was a direct attack on one of their gods. They had many gods, but these were ten gods that God demonstrated to them that he was completely powerful over all of them. The plagues were intended to demonstrate to them that their gods were nothing, that the God of Israel was the omnipotent, all-powerful one. Secondly, if you recall, the plagues were God's response to the cries of the people. You read Exodus 1 to 4 and you find in there two or three accounts in which we find the people crying out to God because of their affliction. God hearing them, God looking on their oppression, and God saying, I will come down and deliver them. Doesn't that sound exactly like the prayers of the saints under the altar as they cry out to God, How long, O Lord, until you bring vengeance upon those who persecute us? And so what we have in the Exodus and the, the description of the people of Israel in Egypt in microcosm for is the reality of the church in the world today. And that God is continuing to, to pour out judgment upon the world in response to the cries of God's people and upon the um, idolatry and the hardness of hearts amongst people in our world today. The impact of the trumpets is upon the whole world. This is what Revelation is describing for us. And they reflect God's judgment upon the evil and the idolatry and the hardness of heart in the lives of men and women in our world today. And they, like the plagues God sent upon Egypt, are in response to the cries of God's people and his afflicted ones. We know very little of this. 
But I can give you two or three books about the persecution of the people of God in, in people, places in the world, in the Middle East. And when you read even 30 pages, you're crying out, God, why? God, how long? God, really? The oppression and the affliction of God's people is real. And it's awful. And they cry out to God for deliverance. We really struggle with judgment, particularly in North America. We don't like to talk about a God of judgment. We don't like to think about a God of judgment. People in our neighborhoods, in the places of work that we go, cringe and recoil and, and react to any notion that God is a God of judgment. We don't like that word, but in fact, it's that word which summarizes the seven trumpets. It's judgment. But why don't we like judgment? I, I think some, for part of it, it's because we don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand the righteousness of God. We don't understand the perfection of God. We don't understand the purity of God. We don't understand the hideousness of sin. We don't understand the offense of idolatry. We don't understand what it is when, when God is saying, worship me and worship me alone. And rather than worship the creator, we worship created things and how offensive that is to God. Maybe it's because we have become so callous to the evil that we see all around us. And we've lost sight of a sense of outrage to evil and injustice. We've become desensitized to the persecution of our brothers and sisters around the world. Have you ever read through the book of Psalms and become stumped by the imprecatory Psalms? There's got to be, I've got, I don't know how many listed here, there's got to be at least 10 to 12. Imprecatory Psalms are Psalms in which the writer of that particular song cries out to God to punish injustice to punish evildoers. And we read those kinds of things and we think, really, is that how we're to pray? And we give more weight and rather than trying to work out how they go together, we give more weight to those things where we are to pray for those who persecute us and we're to bless those who persecute us. They're not in contradiction to one another. Those two go together. God's people are called to suffer, but we're not called to roll over and play dead. And as we have seen, the trumpets are God's answer to the prayers of his saints. There is a distinction to be made between praying for justice and for God to judge evil and sin and affliction and between taking matters into our own hands. We ought to pray, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. And so these trumpets are about judgment, judgment that falls because the saints that are praying are praying for God to avenge their suffering and affliction. But judgment is not all bad news, at least not with the trumpets. It, it, it assures us, the trumpets assure us that there is coming a day of full and final judgment. But do you notice that, that as we read through the trumpets, the fraction one-third, it's used to my count at least 16 times in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And these fractions are, 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 are symbols, not statistics. We are meant not to take these with mathematical literalness. What we are meant to see here is mercy. Why mercy? Because two-thirds of the earth is spared. Two-thirds of the water is protected. Two-thirds of the heaven is preserved. In other words, that in the midst of judgment, one-third is destroyed, but two-thirds is left, giving an opportunity to repent. In judgment, we see the kindness of God. Because his full judgment is reserved and is held back and is restricted. See, the judgments that we find in Revelation 8 and 9 are paradoxically really kindnesses of God. 
God is going to great lengths, even to destroying his good creation in order to bring men and women to their senses and to repentance. And it, as I already said, so few actually respond in repentance towards God. And so we come to these first four trumpets. And they are a group. They are a unit. When you look at verse 13, there's a break. And it's, uh, the angel says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it furred directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Judgment will fall on humanity in the last three trumpets. But in the first four trumpets, it's on inanimate creation. The earth is affected. The sea is affected. Fresh water is affected. The sky is affected. All of these are sources of human lights or human life. You see, through these trumpets, God is shaking the ungodly. He's shaking them in their earthly security. He's trying to rattle them out of their allegiance and their love for gods of their own making, gods that are rooted in things of this world, in things of the earth, in things of the sea, in things of the sky, in things of the cosmos. And when any of the great elements of the creation get between us and God and they become idols, God will judge them and topple them. That's what we find in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, that as man turned away from worshiping the Creator to worshiping creation, God gave them over to depravity. The trumpets here describe the fearful damage to the land and vegetation, to the sea and things in it and things upon it, to the fresh water and to the, to the, to the, um, the rivers and, and the springs that come from the ground and to the light by which we see. It's an impact on the environment in which humankind lives, on commerce in which we engage in, on the resources which we rely on, on the vision which gives us light to go through the day and night. But again, the damage is only partial, which again seems to demonstrate to us that the trumpets are sounding not doom, but warning. These leave open the door for the kindness of God. There's a sadness, in a sense, to the trumpets because they seem to be describing something of a decreation. At the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, God looks at all that he has made and he says, it is very, very good. And then we come to uh, the sin of Adam and Eve and we get to Genesis 3, 17 to 19 and there we see that the ground is cursed. That the impact of sin falls even upon the ground and the world in which we live. Paul reminds us that, in fact, all of the cosmos has been impacted by sin because it is held bondage, it is held captive, it is in futility, and it longs, it says, Paul says in Romans, to be released from that captivity. And I think sometimes we need to expand our view of the redemptive impact of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a tremendous thing for you and I. We see the, uh, the implications of the resurrection of Christ for us personally, but do you ever look beyond yourself and realize that this whole cosmos is going to be redeemed through the redemption of Jesus Christ and brought to restoration? And so God is even willing, though, to systematically undo creation in order to bring men and women to their senses. Trumpet one impacts life on earth. Hail and fire mixed with blood. An Egyptian plague is referenced clearly. It's describing how our earth is impacted. Vegetation is impacted. The food supply of earth is disruptive. Blood is symbolic of violence. So it could be describing that the violence is behind some of that disruption in the food supply. In other words, man's physical um, environment is impacted. 
And we get some sense of that in the world in which we live now. We see some of the devastation that takes place in our world caused by human causes, but also caused by things that are outside of human control. The second trumpet impacts the sea. It's crippled in many respects. A great mountain burning with fire is thrown into the sea. You notice the first three trumpets all in one way or another have fire associated with it. And fire in the Old Testament is often used to describe judgment in one form or another. A third of the sea is turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea die. A third of the ships upon the, uh, the, the waters are destroyed. It's a way, again, of saying that human life is impacted. The resources that we rely on are impacted. Our maritime economy is impacted as God brings judgment upon humankind. The third is there are rivers and our fresh waters. A burning star named Wormwood, poisoning, um, bitterness, blazing like a torch is hurled to earth, and it impacts a third of the rivers and a third of the fresh water. So much so that it says many people die from drinking those waters. And the fourth impact are cosmic disturbances in the heavens above. Limited darkness. One-third of the sun, one-third of the moon, one-third of the stars are darkened. This can't be a permanent state because life on earth would cease to exist. Again, this is a symbolic reminder that there are disturbances in the heavens that disrupt our ability to see, our ability to function our ability to navigate, our ability to uh, get through life without the natural life that God has provided for us. Why? Why are these trumpets sounded in the last days as Christ is reigning in heaven above? Well, they expose the futility of our thinking. They expose the foolishness of idolatry and put in our trust and confidence in things of this world and things that can in a moment be turned upside down, uh, vanish, be destroyed by fire or by earthquake or some other source. They expose the fearful consequences of oppressing the people of God. And these first four trumpets together prove that those who live only for this world have chosen a futile existence that earthly things will eventually turn in on us and we dare not depend upon them. They're meant to demonstrate to the world that you ought not to put your confidence in earthly gods and earthly things, that you ought to worship God and God alone. And by recapitulating the Egyptian plagues, God wants to make his power known again to a world who is worshiping all kinds of false gods, following after all kinds of idols and will not look to him. And God wants to systematically judge those things, destroy those things, so that we come to our senses and realize that God alone is powerful and to be worshipped. These are really complex images, aren't they? The identification of them can be puzzling. And I think we need to exert a lot of caution when it comes to looking for a strictly literal explanation of these trumpets. Are we supposed to look at them literally? Are we supposed to look at these events literally? Or, or are, that is, are we to expect these, um, these kinds of physical calamities in times that we live today? In part, that does seem to be the intent of the Bible. The Bible and the New Testament lead us to expect such things in our world and in our day. Certainly within the period of the New Testament time, these visions were partially fulfilled through natural, naturally occurring calamities in the devastation of volcanoes in AD 79. There's human devastation caused by wars. 
But these trumpets are also revealed in highly figurative language. As I said, one-third is not meant to be taken literally. It's meant to be taken symbolically. And these descriptions that we have here are also intended to be taken symbolically. The picture is not only of natural calamities, but of divine calamities. The picture is of God acting in judgment upon this world in ways that are not only physically um, impactful, but spiritually impactful. And we're not simply to look for historical accounts of volcanoes or the like as a fulfillment of these prophecies. Um, uh, the primary purposes of praying these, portraying these judgments as the descent of burning objects from the sky is not to equate them with missiles or meteors or atomic fallout or acid rain or volcanic ash. Rather, it's to stress the divine destruction that decimates our physical world through warfare and other human evils or natural disasters that it's all ultimately under God's sovereign purpose as he is defending his people and warning his enemies. See, an expectation of a totally literal fulfillment of any of these visions misses the point of them. The point of them is that people ought to all of a sudden say, this is the finger of God. This is the hand of God. This is the work of God. So what's our response? Will you hear the warning? That's the response that the world should have. Will you hear the warning? See, the present state of our world and the accumulation of events that destroy our land and vegetation and sea and sea life and our marine economy and our rivers and springs and cosmic events should declare to us that something is wrong. Something is not right in the world in which we live. You're headed in the wrong direction. You're not going to find relief if you keep going down that road. Rather, turn and acknowledge God who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and everything in them. Acknowledge God who sits on the throne of the universe. See, this world and all that in it is not meant to be worshipped by humankind. This world and all its resources are not to be trusted by humankind. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away. Don't worship creation or anything in it. It's foolish to trust in what is unstable. It's foolish to trust in what can be here today and gone tomorrow. The climax then of these temporal judgments and sufferings is the final destruction of the entire world and its wicked system, which is what the seventh trumpet will lead us to. And so the challenge is for us as the people of God, one, to be encouraged by the fact that God is in control, that God is behind these things that devastate the animate creation in which we live. That we ought to look at the world through the perspective of heaven. We ought to hear the news and watch the news through the perspective of heaven. We live in a world where right now the trumpets are sounding. These trumpets are not something reserved for some distant time in the church age. We live in a world where right now the trumpets are sounding. And we ought to listen to them. We ought to see them with our ears, so to speak, through the witness of Scripture. That these events that we see unfolding around us, these disasters, these devastations, these destruction of, of our planet that are happening today and have happened down through history have divine purposes attached to them. They're not random occurrences. They're not sort of just human disasters that have been created or caused by mankind, but they have divine purposes attached to them which are relevant for unbelievers and believers alike. So the question is, how do we respond to such calamitous events? 
How do we look at the devastations in our world? What goes through our hearts and minds? What's our response to these things? And what does that say about us and our relationship with God? What should the characteristic response be when we see the trumpets blown in the world in which we live? The wonderful thing, as I said, about these trumpets is that right now, judgment is only partial. That the kindness of God is to be everywhere seen in the preservation of two-thirds. I was thinking about this when it comes to the Lord's table. The Lord's table really is an illustration of judgment and kindness, isn't it? It's an illustration of the judgment of God upon our sins that fell on Jesus Christ, our Savior, as Jesus drank the full cup of the wrath of God that should have rightly been poured out upon us for our sins. And yet Christ bore our judgment in order that we could receive and live in the kindness of God. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5 explain this, I think, in a helpful way. Verse 4 to 5a describe the judgment of God, where Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Judgment of God. He was crushed for our iniquities. Judgment of God. Upon him was the chastisement, that brought us peace, judgment of God, kindness to us, that brought us peace, and that by his wounds we are healed, kindness of God. As we come to this table this morning, let your heart sing with the knowledge that you are a recipient of the kindness of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And maybe as you come to this table this morning, pray for your husband or your wife, your son or your daughter, your grandchild, your neighbor, your workmate, who at this point is oblivious to the trumpets that are sounding in order to get their attention to turn to God and pray maybe in judgment they will see kindness and mercy and find forgiveness for their sins. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. As we gather around this table now, may our hearts be filled with gratitude, thanksgiving, fullness because of your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.